0: feel I 'm in a good position to be um, heard and understood as uh, English hopes fade in the World Cup you know all normality comes back to the to the nation of England and um, <laughs> you know France and Croatia i don 't know who who really cares um, but it is a pleasure again. Um, I feel like today, as I kind of come um, dealing with my second second sermon on this series of doctrines, um, and having kept you way, 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 way too long the last time, which i I, I definitely don't want to do that today. Um, but I fear that in, in in the midst of that, so much of my other teachings have feared, because I have been thinking about this particular subject pretty much non-stop for the last two weeks, uh, two months. I fear other sermons have actually gone the way of not getting my full attention because this has actually weighed on my mind. And I think in a good way because it's it has been so divisive, this whole idea of God's sovereignty and human sovereignty, that it has, you know, I mean, to, 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 to say that Things have become very bitter at times. It's not not something um, to be taken lightly because we know that God's church should be a place in which love and joy abide um, between us all. And so, um, but it's good to know that what you believe, you actually believe for real and that you are actually engaged in the truth. And for this particular reason, I... I I felt that that time was important. And not to say that actually all my other servants have actually benefited from that because it's knowing who God is and who I am that ultimately, I think ultimately this is what this question is about. Who am I and who is God? And what ought to come first? Am I supposed to try to understand who I am and then try to understand who God is or am I supposed to understand who God is and then have that filtered down? I think today what we will be dealing with is this question of does anthropology come before theology? Or ought theology to come before anthropology? So is the study of God... Theology, supposed to come before the study of humanity, anthropology. And the problem is, is that often, in many sides of the debate, it has been the anthropology side that has determined the theology. And in that way, God picks up the spear change. What room does God now have, now that I have now determined who I am? And then our theology becomes, I believe, poorer for it, simply because now God is now begging for the scraps we've now left him. Let me begin with um, a comic. First time I've ever used a comic reference, but it strangely compelled me to, to kind of understand how to kind of teach this, and it's always good to kind of have something that I think kind of gives sums up in my in my mind what I'm trying to deal with now. So back in 1984, a comic book came out called Swamp Thing. For most of you who read comic books, you may not have never heard of this this particular character. But he is actually an important character within the DC universe. I am a DC man, not a Marvel man. Amen. Long live the DC universe. So, so, I began growing up reading um, DC comics. Um, so, my pound, back in those days, used to buy me five comics, um, you know. And one time I picked up a graphic novel. So, what was unique about the DC universe at that time was that this, there was a new rave of young talent coming in who really revolutionized things. And one of these people was called Alan Moore. And he wrote this particular comic, Swamp Thing 21, in which he wanted to take a a character that had existed from 1972 and add some new life to it. And this is where the darker DC kind of came from, that these new writers came in and brought some real kind of depth and oomph to it. But anyway, Swamp Thing 21. Had the, p- the situation where Alex Holland, so this is the basic character of, of, of Swamp Thing. Alex Holland was a scientist dealing with, uh, and a botanist who was dealing with um, research into plants, all the rest of it. And we see the, the, the normal thing of a scientist, and all of a sudden he's done these things, and then he has an ex- his, his experiment then ends in an explosion. <laughs> he, his body and all of the chemicals and all the plants he was with now fall into the swamp. And then what emerges out of the explosion is swamping. And so now Alex Holland is, is, is struggling like a Frankenstein kind of creature, uh, thinking that he has now been turned into a plant. And that's what he had. He was a, something he had to control over kind of nature. He could <laughs> trees grow rapidly and he could cause, um, you know, vegetation to grow. And, and he used that as a way of t- a, a tool of fighting, so to speak. Not that he was a a traditional superhero at all. That would be be to misrepresent the character. So anyway, so Alec Holland was going around thinking that, how am I going to become Alec Holland again? How am I going to become human again? And this was the tragedy of the Swamp Thing. So anyway, in um, Swamp Thing 20, Alan Moore wrote that Swamp Thing gets caught. And he gets caught because... Another company, another chemical company wants to reverse engineer the process of what happened to see if they can do it again. You know, the, the typical thing of how can we use this for engines of war, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Could we make more swamp thing creatures? And so, as so in, in number 21 now, Has he's being caught, the comic is called the Anatomy Lesson. And so now this scientist, Dr. Woodru, who is now examining Swamp Thing. He's trying to find out what makes him work. How did this chemical transform him into a, into, a, into a plant? And so as he is cutting this person to pieces, he sees that all the parts of swamp thing shouldn't work. He takes out and he cuts out his lungs and he cuts out his kidneys and he says they're there, but they do not function. In fact, even as they take out his brain, which is all kind of plant-like, he says the brain doesn't work as a brain. How does this thing actually walk, live, and breathe and speak like Alec Holland? He, in his searching, he now actually discovers in his research this thing called the planetary worms. And he discovers from the planetary worms that these worms, if you teach them how to go through a, a maze, then you can actually cut that worm up, feed it to another planetary worm who doesn't actually know how to go through the maze, and believe it or not, that worm will now know how to go through the maze because it's ate and absorbed the knowledge of that other worm. And so now he's like thinking, wow, I wonder if this is the truth about swamp Has the plant eaten his body through this explosion, and now he is walking around thinking that he is Alex Holland, but really actually he is a vegetable, a plant, who now believes that he is Alec Holland. That was the final truth of the comic. Here was Alec Holland, and he sets this t- company up because this, this guy who was researching, Dr. Woodrow, wanted the company to be destroyed because he knew what would be the outcome. And so he, he sets up so that Swampy, when he wakes, he will read the report that has been written about him, knowing that it will horrify him, knowing that he will never be Alec Holland because he never was Alec Holland. He is a vegetable. He is a plant walking around, believing he is a, a he is a, a man who really he isn't. And Swamp Thing destroys the boss of the company. But what actually compelled me to buy that comic book? Because obviously Swamp Thing is not a traditional superhero. So why did I actually buy it? Was because I saw a picture at the end of the comic, and it was a picture of Swamp Thing walking back into the swamp with his hands out wide, the sun glowing on him, and he was liberated. And it was a fantastic picture. And me being an artist, I, I loved good art, hence I bought it. And so even though at the end of that particular episode, the Swamp Thing is crazy and mad at the fact that he is not who he thought he was, At the end of it, he learned to accept the fact of who he was. He actually found the truth was liberating. The peace and the joy. I am who I am. And let the lie perish. Even his own delusion perish. The truth can be is often, if not always, humbling. We are not who we tend to think that we are. You know, one of the things of, of, uh, as Romans, as I will get into that a little bit later, um, (laughs) Paul tells everybody, everyone needs to humble themselves so so that no one thinks more highly of themselves than they ought to. And there's very good reasons why Paul says that. It can be liberating also when you hear the truth because now you realize that you have a firm foundation in which to establish yourself on. Let me now create my freedom here as opposed to on a lie in which, I guess you would say in the teachings of Jesus, is like sinking sand. Build your life upon the rock. And that rock is truth, And that tells me that, again, in a, in, a, in a very subtle way, that actually my theology ought to become before my theology, my, my anthropology. I need to be able to determine who I, who my God is, and then allow him to tell me who I am. A couple of scriptures, I, it's, these are not going to be my main scriptures, I want to deal with, I want to do this in three sections, I want to, one, first of all I want to um, add my criticism and look at Ar- the Arminian view and tell you why I believe it fails, Secondly, I want to look at Romans 9 um, and, and kind of do a brief overview of that. And then thirdly, I want to conclude with the whole idea of where can wisdom be found? Why is wisdom important? Because as you deal with the whole idea of predestination, which is my subject today, and I, I would say our, our attached to that is also God's providence, um, they, they're both kind of interlinked, that I, I need to be able to unpack this, and I don't want to kind of go over old territory that I dealt with, in my previous sermons on, um, on uh, regeneration. So predestination is, is, is God, or should we say, determining someone's destiny. In other words, my fate is actually held up in God. And this is the teaching as it comes from the scriptures, I believe. My faith is ultimately in God. And in that sense, you can see why both providence and both predestination pretty much speak about the same thing. Two scriptures I want to begin with is Proverbs 16.1. the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. At the end of that at that same chapter, Proverbs sixteen thirty three, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast. Who's going to win today? Will it be France or will it be Croatia? God already knows, even if you don't know. Will England win in four years' time? God only knows. Let's pray. Father, as we dig into these things and as we, um, we think, Lord, um, where, is, where is the fate there, Lord God? Where am I? Lord, help us to do this well. Help us as we look into your word. Help us as we look into our own lives as well. Um, Help us, dear Lord God, to maybe even reorganize ourselves. If we have not done so, to be able to put our theology, our understanding of who you are before all else. Lord, help us to do this because, Lord, it's the ground that you give us that is actually liberating. And not the ground that we take for ourselves. Not the, as it were, the presuppositions that I take for myself that are ultimately um, going to help me. But the presupposition that you are who you are and then all else flows from that, the Lord God. Help us to do that. Help us to reorientate our lives around you. Help us to realize that the sun doesn't, doesn't revolve around myself. But that, Lord God, that all, all creation flows to your being. And as we do so there, Lord God, help us to find our peace in that, our joy in that. And ultimately, Lord God, what I believe in application, our security. That, Lord, you are who you are and that you are good and that you have good intentions for us. And like like you said to Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you and they are for good and not for evil, to give you an expected end. Lord, help us there, Lord God, to regain if we have lost that security. Because as we understand who you are, Lord God, we will find our peace. Lord help us to do that. And if I if if my words help that Lord God and help your spirit to to ignite that into our hearts today then Lord God then I give thanks to you because you have made that so. And Lord we give thanks because this is your church and your people have your way with them I pray in Jesus name. Amen. The Armenian perspective. So why do I believe that um they, they do not actually grasp the issue the way that I believe that the reform position does grasp it, which I believe is better. And what I don't want to do here is kind of pick up all the different answers because, again, I said I don't want to do an hour and 20 minutes again. Um, but I want to kind of pick up what I believe is the point of tension. In other words, where where do we ultimately disagree? And then use that. as as, as a means to say, well, this is why I believe it is wrong. So I want to pick up the words of a a notable um, Armenian scholar, um, Ian Howard Marshall. And he, writing in the New Dictionary of Christian Apologetics, under the title of predestination, he gives his own definition of this, and he says this, Faced by the overwhelming amount of evidence from scripture that God treats people on a personal level, in genuine relationships, the better course is not to argue that the existence of the predestinarian language forces us to regard this dialogue language as purely anthropomorphic and empty of its significance by affirming casual determination, determinism but rather to accept the dialogue language as primary and to recognize that the statements of total divine sovereignty and foreknowledge are rhetorical and not to be misunderstood literally. Do you see what Ian Howard Marshall has done there? He has said that the the personal engagements with the dialogues that you get within the scripture are to be seen as primary. Primary. And everything else that refers to the revelation and the knowledge of God ought to be secondary, subordinate to that which is. So in other words, he believes that anthropology must come before theology. He's passed away now and he's a a learned scholar, but I have to criticize criticize him where he's at. As a prominent exponent of this particular point of view. And this is, here he he is, in a section on Christian apologetics in an evangelical book. Telling us that we should ignore and treat the words and the speeches about God as secondary. In other words, the Bible is a revelation of man. And not actually a revelation of who God is. And herein lies my problem, because as far as I'm concerned, Arminians are basically students of the enlightenment. Man is the measure of all things. In other words, determine who man is, and then base everything he understands and rationalize upon him. That's a problem for me. Because I know the Bible, though it has, has revelations about who I am, ultimately I believe, and I've always believed, as far as, as long as I've been an evangelical, that ultimately the scriptures are a revelation of who God is. This is your God. This is who I am. Watch me as I take you from the Exodus back into Genesis. I am your creator. I don't agree with Marshall, and I'm glad that he put his case as clearly as he did because this is the problem. I can't ignore and treat it as rhetorical or metaphorical, the statements about God's sovereignty. That would be to do God injustice and to do man the greatest honor. To give him the chief seat within the, 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 the canon of scripture. And as I said, they do so, I believe, as children of the enlightenment. And I believe so, they do so as children of the enlightenment because they are still, as in some ways we all are, because we are still creatures of the full. I will know good and evil. I will determine what's right for me. I will determine. Um, whether God can tell me that that tree is is not for me, because I will taste it and I will see. I will be able to make that decision for myself. And for that particular reason, the overwhelming evidence. Anyway, let me. Ju- this is the very essence of the fall. Our our determination not to take God's word for it. I will stand in the place of rationalism. I will stand in the place of reason. And I will determine whether God actually is right about this tree. About whether knowledge is good for me. I will determine for myself. And when we take that position, I believe that what I hear in the Arminian position is this reassertion of I believe I am free to determine that for myself. I believe I'm a free creature. What we see also, contrary to, um, to Marshall, is the overwhelming evidence of the biblical narrative is the human resistance to being the creature they are designed to be before God. That's the overwhelming message I see I see a whole lot of people all the way up to Christ and all the way after Christ failing to meet the mark. Even David, standing at the pinnacle of of the biblical account in history, fails God and fails his people. The overwhelming evidence for me is that we are all determining what's right for ourselves at some point in life. We are constantly resisting. I believe if we're not actively building a Christian worldview, we will automatically absorb the values surrounding our culture. And, I'm, and that's the problem. In the Western world right now, we are all struggling with the Enlightenment and the effects of that, of we need to be free. The gender debate today, again, is all symptoms of this whole idea of I will determine who I am. And forgive my language, damned if I have genitalia that tells me opposite. We are all experimenting with this whole idea of self-determining ourselves. I believe we have to come hard against the spirit of the age. And we have to do so in a way that is, quote unquote, both loving, but at the same time, firm. I believe what I believe because this is the truth. And I believe that we cannot do that merely by trying to renegotiate people's anthropology. Or maybe you're a bit more like this, or maybe you're a little bit confused. We need to be able to determine that actually God is the person who's determined your sex. And he's left you with great evidence towards that effect. have to be like the child in the emperor's new clothes. Being able to look at the folly of the age and be able to say, you're naked. You're naked. You don't actually have anything covering you. You're running around in actual foolishness. And I think that's sometimes what we're missing, is the ability to tell people as it is. I believe that also the, you know, one particular problem that also occurs and again, um, Wayne Gruen, in his um, analysis of the Armenian position, uh, makes this assertion I just reaffirm it for you that if God is not the ultimate sovereign, the, determinate, uh, the, the, the person determining all things, a problem emerges with the whole issue of the new heaven and the new earth. And this is my final point on my criticism of, of Ar- the Armenian perspective. Are we to believe that a new rebellion is possible <laughs> if man's essential nature is, is, is that he is free to make whatever decision he was, as much as God can impress upon him his grace, that ultimately he now determines where he's going to go, then how can we be assured that a new heaven and a new earth won't fall into a new rebellion. If God is not so impressing upon our will to obey him and to be in relationship with him, how will we ever be able to say the new heaven and the new earth will be eternal bliss? That problem emerges. And I know they'll say, hopefully not caricaturing them, that, we will not want to disobey. It will be perfect. But then we arrive at Adam and Eve again. It was perfect there too. And yet it became apparent to them that they needed to change that, that actually we can actually tweak perfection. I rest my case there though there are many other things that could be said. Romans 9, let's turn there. I want to kind of read through this quickly, kind of go with this, because this is again where, the, where, where it is, and I want to do something scriptural with you, um, at least at the heart of what I'm doing in my message, um, and having done with the Armenian perspective of predestination, let, let let's Paul's words speak for himself, I pray. So this is what he says, reading from the ESV. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in this Holy Spirit. that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I would, could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who is not not beloved I will call beloved. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, it's actually in the previous chapter, chapter 8, the great chapter. I don't know whether you are like myself that whenever I'm going for a difficult time, Romans 8 is, is a good pick-me-up. Who can separate us from the love of God? You know, all things work together for good. For them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. For whom he has predestined, he also justified. Good Lord. Great to hear that in times of failing, in times of difficulty. Romans 8 is a go-to. Ought to be in your books as well. Give it a try if you haven't. Now, he's just... Paul has just made these statements about who can separate us from the love of God based on the whole idea of predetermination, of predestination. And so now he has to back up, and so the first five verses, Paul has to assert, and an objection he can already see within the mind of those who have any understanding of, what, of Israel and where Israel was at at that current time in the first century. Not all had believed in Christ. And, he, and he's now dealing with the question of, well, basically, if God is so determined to save his people, what about Israel? If he is the one who's determining, are they not the called and the chosen people? Why are they not saved? Why are they not believing? And so Romans 9 is now having to back up this statement. And for the next three chapters, he's going to go over the same matter. And so therefore, people will find that chapter chapter 8 and then chapter 12 is the logical conclusion of those two things. But he has to... So 9, 10, and 11 are like a parenthesis in this whole issue of Israel. And in chapter 9, he has to deal with this whole idea of, well, basically, if Israel is not saved, then basically, how can I believe that God will save me also? Where is my security if he has left these guys to the wayside? That only a handful of them are saved. six and seven, here he clarifies that not all the children of Abraham are included in the promise, namely Ishmael. So now he has to go and say, basically, it's not by birth that the promise is initiated. It's actually as God speaks into each individual person's life. It's of the promise, he says, not by mere physical birth. Verse 8, so God makes exclusions based on his free will so that it is his spirit that makes the promise active and not physical birth from Abraham. So he's now saying it's God who has to, in he's free because he is the ultimate person. He is the true person who is actually saying, this person I am calling. No, Ishmael, no, nothing to do with him. I'll help him. I'll, I'll make him be a prosperous nation, but he will not inherit the promise, which counsels out any legitimate claim through Ishmael, via Islam, that this is the true path. True religion will come from Isaac, not Ishmael. Verse 9, Sarah, having made her own attempt to fulfill God's promise, was told that she would either, will give birth even against her best hopes. Her best hopes were Hagar. That's the best hope. That's the best I can see of this situation coming. And, but she's told, no, you will give birth. And it's almost like now as he highlights this situation, he was saying that Sarah was beyond physical birth. So even in the process of physical birth, God is showing that my sovereignty over your womb is the ultimate decider. Do you see that? Not your, not, because if, if he'd done it to, to Sarah, who was 30 or 40, well, we could say, well, she was born and ultimately is. He takes a woman whose, whose womb is dead to re-emphasize his, his whole idea that I am the ultimate determiner of what's going to happen in your life. Did you see that? Again, proving that even down to the physical birth of of Isaac, it is God's will, not human will, that flourishes. Moving swiftly on, 10 10 to 13 now deals with, again, Paul highlights God's selection of Jacob over Esau. This continues his pattern of revealing that not all of Abraham's descendants are included in the promise. So what we find is that each successive generation comes that a child is being selected. A process of elimination is being being determined. And as we go down, we find that that keeps on narrowing to Judah, to David. Narrowing and narrowing and narrowing and narrowing and narrowing down. That God is the ultimate determiner. As he says in... um, 1 Samuel 15, I will choose myself. Now I will choose myself a king. As Samuel goes down to the house of Jesse. You've chosen your king and I've given him your king. Now I will choose my king. He continues this pattern of revealing and stripping down. But also note that God's selection did not make, did not, God did not make his selection in accordance with merit. And he makes it quite plain. It's not because he's, he, as again, Arminian will say, because God sees our good works and somehow says, well, let me just join with that bandwagon. Uh, because again, it's our case of doing our anthropology before theology. And so, therefore, God is just jumping on the bandwagon that's going to win. So ultimately, God is just, just going with the flow. Because I can see what's going to happen because God, I go in my, my little time machine and see what's going to win. Let me just jump and put my bets on the person who is actually going to win. And then God is cheating, basically. Don't I look powerful? Because I know who's going to win. I have to call it as I see it. So 14 to 16, these verses down lead Paul to the conclusion that the free will of God is the only decisive instrument in determining people's fate. Please also note that Paul could have made himself very clear here that he was not saying that God saw people's good works beforehand. He had very ample space here because God saw what will happen. He actually goes in the completely opposite direction to that and says, because of his will. He takes himself right, he, 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 and this is the thing about it, is that here you go, here, here is the key scripture, and this is where the true Armenian needs to kind of arm wrestle with the scriptures, because it's here is the point of tension, and unless we stand above the apostleship of Paul, it is here we have to contend is, why does Paul not say what I want him to say right here? Why put predetermination or predestination in the Bible? It hurts. Plenty of other words he could have used. He doesn't say what people expect him to say. He believed that the individual free will could have have any sway. Individual free will could have any sway with the providence of God. People are who they are going to be because that's the way God has determined it. So what is true for those he intended to redeem in verse 17 is also true for those he leaves to their own devices. And he uses the example of Pharaoh here. So Pharaoh being the pinnacle of of human power at that particular time, of human determination, of human autonomy. Here is the person who has all the resources of of Egypt at his hands, and yet God is showing him that as much as Pharaoh was, was fighting against his will, ultimately he couldn't arm wrestle with God's determination to set these people free. At a time, and I think that he particularly chose to manifest himself at a time, not in a modern age of democracies or the rest of it, he, t- he chose a time when, when kings were, were, were considered to be gods. And I think that's very important. God chose to do this demonstrating thing. He didn't wait for ages and ages and he says, Well, look, uh, Abraham, your people will be delivered in, in, in 3,000 years when, when democracies will be set up and all the rest of it. He particularly chose a time when, 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 when kings were identified as deities. And God defeats him. Verse 18, here Paul ends the paragraph by reasserting what he started at, stated at the beginning of the paragraph, that it's God's providence that ultimately triumphs. Verse 19, the logical question that Paul anticipates from his reader then is is that if God exercises such autonomy over his creation, is that, and and, and it does what he desires, he says, well, why does he continue to find fault? And he he puts the question into his own mouth because he knows that's the next question that's going to come. If we're just basically all just running on the rails, then ultimately, why does God find fault? It's a good question. Verse 20 now answers that. And note that Paul doesn't even engage with the question, he finds the question invalid. So he asserts the question because, again, as a good teacher, as a, as a good practitioner of, of giving people the truth, he, in, he has to acknowledge the logical conclusion of their, of their, their introspection. Well, Paul, there's a problem here. And, they, and he's, he's acknowledging that someone has put their hands up in class. But what he does is he now says, that is an invalid question. Because ultimately you're riding roughshod over who God is. The creature create the creature creator distinction doesn't allow for human rights. Wait a minute. It- Let me run to the European Court of Human Rights. Someone is here determining what I'm going to do and is running rush on because they won't allow me to be a transgender. Lord, you, 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 you can't do that. I'm free. There's no running to any court of human rights against God. There is no judge that sits above him in which, well, oh, actually, God, you've overstepped your mark. It's invalid. The very fact that he is the creator, is basically says, you have no, you can't answer to the person who owns you. And not in a case of slavery where even slaves might have had rights in that age. The creature-creature distinction basically means that we are owned by God because he made us from nothing. Our very existence depends upon him. Which court are you going to take him to? He now uses an illustration, as I, as I, as I, as I, I, as I used in my previous sermon on, on, on regeneration, of the creature, and he likens it to a creator of a pot. I am the potter. You are the clay. I'm making something. Please don't tell me what I'm making. As I said, if people who find it like God painted on a canvas that you haven't touched me, Lord, with, with your pen, then God is like saying, I'm drawing a picture, shut up. If you, if you remain untouched by me, it's because I'm trying to create a picture and I'm not trying to paint a, a whole wall the same color. As you find some artists there, you, you go into these, the National Gallery and you see canvases with just all red. God is not an abstract artist. <laughs> I'm painting a particular picture and all creation. And again, contrary to some people with the whole idea of equality and, and, and universalism, I'm not trying to paint a canvas that is completely white. Oh, look at that. And then we're supposed to get, we're supposed to get it. We're all equal, we're all the same. If we have been touched by the creator's hand, praise God. He had so determined it so that his glory in the picture, non-abstract one, will shine. And the blank spaces, as we will get to, are there because they create contrast. Praise God. And we ought to be able to say praise God there with like a hearty praise God. It's difficult, I know, but you'll get there, I pray. Not just when I say God is going to come through for you. Praise God! But when I tell you that he he is so determined that his glory is so important that even above those who are saved against those who are unsaved, you ought to say praise God and jump out of your seat. So how do we deal, and I think sometimes here maybe an illustration is different, and, and I thought that, and this, I gave great thought to this, and I said maybe again, as we deal with the fact that God is actually personally engaging with us, I don't disagree with the fact that we see a dynamic between ourselves and God. And it kind of made me think of like God being a fashion designer, that, that the earth and the creation is like the runway, and he is there behind the scenes sending people out in different clothes. That people are out there engaged in watching and saying, oh, great, look at that. Look at, look at what's happening. Or another illustration of, of, of the creator and the creature in, in terms of a play. God is there as the writer and director. And he's there giving the people the lines as they're going out. And they're saying, well, I don't like these lines. But oh, you know what? I like the villain. Let me go out. As Pharaoh goes, you're going to be Pharaoh and you're not going to want these people to go. Oh, I like this role. And that's what we have, is an interplay of God and us being actively engaged in his creation. He's writing our lines, and we are going out, as many actors do, as many models do, displaying those things which he has given us to do. And we have no choice but to to engage in this because he is the creator. And we are wearing... And we are performing the roles in which we have been given. 22 to 23, here Paul elaborates on the relationship between the vessels of honor and dishonor and states that the only reason God tolerates the vessels of dishonor is for the sake of the vessels of honor. In other words, the negative spaces are important to him because they provide contrast. You can see the picture. I kind of thought of like, you know, (laughs) the magic eye pictures back in the day and about how, uh, whether people can get it because if they can see it, then, you know, but God's revelation doesn't work like that. But God has created the negative spaces for the purpose of his glory. He He elaborates in 24 to 26 that the vessels of honor will include both Jews and Gentiles. In other words, who are those determined? Who are those who have been touched by his hand? Jews and Gentiles are included. In 27 to 29, Paul then sums up his point again by affirming through the words of the prophets that not all Israel is included in the remnant. And I like this as I go back to verse 29. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Keeps some. And not all Israel is Israel. As Again, as we deal with the whole, the difficult issue of, well, how comes not everybody is getting saved? How comes people are walking away? It's the same question. Not all Israel is Israel. And they're just manifesting themselves as they walk away from the Lord. And it's not even to reassert that this isn't something that God has allowed in their life, that they will come back. Because, again, dealing with the man in 2 Corinthians who is Excluded from the fellowship, time is revealing these things, and it's important that we take note. So the Gentiles achieved righteousness, verses thirty to thirty two uh, righteousness purely through faith in God, whereas the Jews, through the mechanics of the law, did not. In other words, again, it deals with the whole idea of, well, if I come in and I just act as a Christian, then that's the kind of the same thing that I got the law. And so it's all good, and I just go through the law, and, and then the law kind of brings me to where I need to be. Again, it, it, it talks about the whole idea of going through the mechanics of Christianity. I got baptized, I went to believers' classes, all the rest of it, mean nothing in the grand scheme of has God revealed to you his son? I cannot just take a logical conclusion. I can't just look at the Ten Commandments in static and and, and just think, well, i just do this and then i love God. There has to be some kind of emotion in it. None of us want to be loved through the motions. I'll just remember your birthday, give you an obligatory card, you know, not even a proper gift. I'll give you a gift card. Um... I, 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 you know, I love you, honey. I love you too. Good night, honey. The the motions don't do it, and this is why I say the Jews through the law couldn't accomplish this. They're going through the motions. Oh, I'm going to temple. Lamb, bam. Thank you, Lord. I'm blessed. It wasn't working. I never intended to work that way because at the heart of the commandments was, you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy strength, with all thy might, with all thy soul. And no one can do that. No one can make us fall in love with somebody else unless we are engaged in it. Unless it's revealed to us the beauty of that person. And then we will love with all our heart with all our strength, with all our might, with all our soul. Let us not take second best. So people can mimic a work of God, but it's not the same. And many people do, I'm afraid. But what I'm talking about is here, the external work is not the same as the internal work of a changed heart. And that's why Ezekiel 36 to 26 to 28 is important. And it says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will not remove, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give, that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. We've got stuff to do. Follow my heart. But he, he does so by giving you a change of heart. Again, going back to regeneration. God has to do that work in somebody. And that's why I say our evangelism is important because God is continuing to do that work in people. And we need to go and find them. They're there sitting with this new heart. And they're going, what do I do with this? And like Paul going out to the ends of the earth, like we going out into our communities, like us going out into our workplaces and to our com- amongst our families, we have to find those people who God's heart has given a new heart to believe. Praise God. Last section, section three. Where is wisdom? All right, I want to run through some chapters in Acts. I believe that, so here my point is, is that I believe that Luke very much uses this whole idea that God increasing the church is important. And again, highlighting the evangelism and, and, and why we go out and why it's important to find these people. Acts 2, 46 to 47 says this, and, by day, and day by day, attending the temple together and, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad, uh, with, with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 11:18, and when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Acts 13:48 and it says this and when the gentiles heard this they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed so I believe that there is a duality, and I guess this is where I, 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 the, the tension between the Armenian, and the reform is kind of also fought as well. Is that we believe that there is something that we do. There is not, um, again, so many people caricature the reform position by saying basically if God saves everybody, then there's nothing to be done. I just sit and I just wait till I get saved. And that's not the case. The whole idea is that God has given people a new heart so that they will actually do stuff with it. You know, I don't sit there and say I fell in love with somebody and don't open my mouth and say, you know, um, would you like to grab a cup of coffee? (laughs) You know. Uh, Next time, would you want to make it dinner? How about meeting my pastor? That's a tougher one, isn't it? But that's the whole idea is that we respond. And this is the fact is that our, we are engaged with God. As we, we, we get this heart, We a, I need to do something with this heart. I love the Lord. I need to do something with it. And I, they were added to the church. And I believe that at the heart of, of Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles, I believe that Paul stands as, the, as, as, as one of, and this is just me, I haven't read enough to be able to see if other commentators agree with me, but I believe that Paul or Saul stands at the heart of the Acts as a a depiction of somebody. If there was one person in that particular point in first century Palestine who was not willing to become a Christian, I would have said it was Paul. simply because every other Pharisee was content to sit down and just persecute the Christian that was in their reach or persecute you (laughs) Paul I heard there's some over in Spain (laughs) give me some tickets let me go to Spain and let me go get them too then hopefully I can then get to Africa and I can get to, I want to rid the whole world of Christians. Wherever they are, I'm going to find them. Like taken. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever you are, I'll find you. <laughs> and I will kill you. And I believe that Paul Saul sits in the heart and it he says, here is the providence of God. Here is the one man who I can show you to show you that who God is. Let me turn his heart and show you the power of God and salvation. Paul could not have done that to himself. It was not within his reach and it was not merely because he was blown off his horse many people fall off horses but what the Lord says to him it's hard for you to kick against who you really are and that same energy that same verve that he took to go to to, to to Damascus he now takes into the gospel let me go wherever I can find Christians those who will believe. Let me go find them. A different side of taken, isn't it? I wanna find you and I wanna bless you. <laughs> <laughs> I got a gift for you. And I've gotta give it All right, let me fly through the next couple of sections and um and then, with my chapter uh, the problem I think also there 's a problem there 's a problem with the whole idea of being temporal. Why does God have to take control over his creation and it 's a question of the fact that m- people are temporal, we are prone to change, and when we look at the laws of physics and all the rest of it is that we are our, 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 our prone to change is towards deterioration, not towards getting better and better and so in that regards. When we look at even within the context of how will God maintain a new heaven and a new earth, it's literally through God's special grace sustaining us. To some extent, Adam and Eve would have all been our fate because who knows, millions of years could have passed before they decided to eat that fruit. Who knows? We've got to be honest with ourselves. We can read the text and think it was like a couple of days afterwards, but that's not the reality of it all. Sooner or later, we start look at a situation and we think, and we just start to kick over the table because too, too much perfection can bore us. And so the whole idea of tweaking it seemed quite good at the time. And this is where we all stand, is that ultimately we find that even God's common grace speaks into this issue because the world is not as bad as it could be because he is not allowing people's hearts to go as far as they could. And when we see it happen, like in a Nazi Germany, 1930s, we start to see what unrestrained people can do. With all the power and the might. As we look back into Genesis 6, we see the same thing, don't we? God had to now say, how am I going to work this? I'm going to have to start shortening people's lives. Both common grace and special grace is the only thing that doesn't put this world in Sodom and Gomorrah. Doesn't put this place into into the antediluvian world before the flood. And I think that's the nature of why God has to, in his sovereign will, sustain all of creation. My final section is knowledge versus wisdom. I wanted to read here um, Job 28, but uh, time will not permit me to do so. Why do we make these these poor exchanges and and think somehow that we we can be trusted to make the right decision about salvation? Let me, I want you to read it in your own time, but I'm going to kind of give you an idea of what Job 28 is about. So just before Paul, just as all the people, um, Bildad, Elphaz, and so far have spoken and everyone has had their say about Job's situation, and just as Job is about to make his final speech, it would appear that the narrator, in the middle of all these debates, in the middle of all these people talking about they know who God is and they know who God, what God will do, and that's why we know that Job's a sinner, and, and Job in his own sense, if I could take God to court, then I'll show God, you know, that he's not right to treat me like this. In the middle of it, the narrator now comes. And he talks about the ingenuity of man. And he speaks about the ingenuity of man where he talks about how how men go and dig into the earth and they can find ore and they can find gold and they can refine it. And they learn how to make light come into dark places. (coughs) (coughs) We look at it today. I I work in Gatwick. Right by the runway, I see massive planes floating in the sky. And I wonder all the time, how can someone, so much weight? And I see it hovering. I say, have you ever seen when the air brakes are on and they come down so slow? And I'm like, and I'm looking at, is that just hovering in the sky? I look and I say, man, it's ingenious. He is smart. Figure things out. No regard. And this is what the narrator gives. He says, man is ingenious. But what he doesn't give to them is that man is not wise. And so often in this debate is that we get strung up in the fact that we are so smart. Oh, I know how to do things. Oh, I know. But none of us are wise enough to be saved. None of us will sit down and choose to be saved. None of us will choose to be under the autonomy of God. None of us. There is none who seeks God, no, not one. And this is what he highlights, is that ultimately the only place that wisdom can be found is in God. And he waits till all these men have spoken, and he inserts that, and he says, "This is what's lacking." Job is a book of wisdom. The only one that speaks wisdom is God. All of us are playing God. And that's why we need to pray for it as James 1 tells us. Let's pray for wisdom that God will give us so that we might make the right decisions. That wisdom is revelation and it only comes from God. And this is exactly what sits at the heart of Job. And this is why I read Romans 16 in closing. 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret from long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about... The obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.